the biggest advice though I would give to younger VCs or at least uh, earlier funds would be patience. Would be um, you know every, everyone that comes in and, and pitches any deal, they sound so good. They've worked on their pitch. It sounds exciting. They've you know they're pitching it well. It sounds awesome. Let's do it. And you got to get really good at at turning down good deals and and being patient and waiting for the great ones. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week, I chat with Jed Katz, Managing Director at Javelin Venture Partners. Javelin is a premier VC firm that has invested in a ton of successful companies, including a bunch of unicorns like Masterclass and Thumbtack. This conversation is a bit special for me. Jed gave me my first break into VC back in 2006. He's been a longtime friend and mentor. He's a special dude, and I go so far as to thank him for all that he's done for me in the opening of my book. Though Jed might not like it, he is officially an OG venture capitalist and entrepreneur. Before helping to start Javelin over 12 years ago, he was a successful founder, navigating the craziness of the dot-com boom and bust, and eventually landing a $1 billion acquisition of his venture, Move.com. He's totally a great guy. Uh, during our conversation, we discuss how Javelin operates, the current state of the VC world, the political implications of social media, important lessons he's learned both as a VC and entrepreneur, and there's so much more. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Bowery Legal. Bowery Legal provides a complete range of legal services to high-growth companies. They do everything from formation, employment, partnership agreements, stock grants, corporate matters, and venture capital and debt financings. If you're interested in learning more, visit BoweryLegal.com. Welcome, Chad. Mark, it's damn good to see you. I don't get enough of you. Wow. <laughs> if only everyone said that. Um, so I'm going to start this off by introducing you. Uh, so people have a little color. I'm sure I'm going to miss lots of goodies, um, but I'll give people a little color in your background so they know why we're talking. And then we'll dive in. Great. So Jed Katz is, the managing, is one of the managing directors at Javelin Venture Partners. For those who don't know Javelin, they are a San Francisco-based, Series A-focused venture capital fund with hundreds of millions under management. We'll get into that in a little bit. They've invested in a bunch of well-known companies. A couple you might know are Masterclass and Thumbtack. And Jed's actually wearing his Thumbtack shirt today as they announced a huge mega round uh, as a unicorn, a unicorn valuation. Uh, I have a particularly soft spot for Jed, which we'll probably talk about. He is one of the people who gave me my break into venture capital back in 2006. So he's been a material part of my career and my story. Um, I actually thank him, I think, in the acknowledgments of my book. Uh, before moving into VC, Jed was the co-founder and COO of Rent.net and Move.com, uh, two connected companies, which happened during the real startup boom back at the turn of the century. And they were real estate sites, right? It's been a while, uh, that not only went public, but ultimately were acquired by Homestore for a billion dollars. So he has successful entrepreneurial experience and a long track record as a VC. Jed, what did I miss? Uh, just one correction. We were, we were actually taking move.com public when the market fell apart. So we kept building it for a year and ultimately merged with realtor.com uh, about a year after that. Ah, got it. 
Okay, but you've, yeah. for the folks listening, you've seen the journey and you experienced the boom. Something yeah, that's almost, I it's mean, almost out like, of the psyche of the startup community, the, the 2000 era, which was the topic 10 years ago still. Gone now. That's true. Uh, look, that was, that was half my career was, was building companies and it was an exciting time. And, um, you know, a part of me certainly misses that. It was really fun to build something from scratch and manage a lot of people and uh, do things that were never done before. Uh, back when there were, uh, you know, few experts on the internet, it was fun to be one. All right. Well, well, after we covered Javelin, maybe we could spend a few minutes catching up on that, some of the things you learned. Cool. Um, so why don't we start in? Do you want to give us an overview of Javelin? Happy to. Uh, Javelin is, wow, it's 12 years old now, amazingly. Uh, we've done five funds, almost 100 investments, and we are really a late seed, early A investor. So we're writing checks from one to five million. I think our average is probably closer to four million, actually. Uh, we've gone as high as 10 in a pretty rare circumstance. Um, and uh, we like to be the first institutional cash in and, and the closest partner to a founder for a decade for however long it takes for that company to become big and have a great exit. <clears throat> uh, we're all former founders. So we tend to invest in things that we'd want to be building if we weren't investing. And um, I have a lot of fun just helping founders figure things out along the way without the drama and distraction that sometimes comes with other investors. Uh, so we just problem solve and build and brainstorm and help recruit and help raise money and help make smart decisions uh, from a strategic point point of view. Uh, and uh, you know, the whole crew has been together a long time. So we, we gel well here. Uh, the process is pretty efficient. Uh, we tend to act more like founders than we do like, like most VCs. And uh, uh, you know, we're, we're excited. We think the portfolio is really good. We think the, um, the relationship with our founders has been fantastic. And uh, you know, we're, we're, we're excited for the next decade. That's great. Can, can you give us a little color on the investment strategy? You can get a little real. You know, one of the challenges entrepreneurs yep. face is all the websites look the same. That's it. But they're not sure. the same. The yep. firms aren't the same. The theses yep. are different. Um, what do you guys do? What do you look for? What do you yep. invest in? So I guess I could best characterize it as signal before traction. So um, sector is actually one of the last criteria we, we use. Um, you know, we're, we're good at certain sectors. We do a lot of marketplaces and SaaS and some consumer and some healthcare IT, some fintech. Uh, but that's not our first criteria. We first look at the the founders, uh, and we tend to invest, you know, again, signal before traction. When they've they've accomplished something, there's something there. There's the product that's been built. There's early usage of it. People are sharing it. They're liking it. They're becoming addicted to it. Or there's early customers who can get a feel for their sales cycle or their pricing or you know how big this thing can get. But really, it comes down to: Do we see this amazing spark in this in this founder? or the founding team, their ability to uh, build something that's really hard to do and then will be really hard to compete with, uh, their ability to recruit and raise money and uh, see the forest and the trees, <laughs> and uh, you know have a great relationship with the people around them, um, have a ton of grit, and, and are just are a pleasure to work with, very intellectually honest. Uh, and then we, we look for businesses that really have an unfair advantage early, you know, whether it's a kind of distribution cheat sheet or a, a uh, you know, a, a way to uh, uh, get a customer base that no one's been able to do before or a, a product that's, uh, you know, really hard to build. Um, you know, markets have to be in the billions. Uh, the moat has to be real. 
And we want to invest in companies that are not just going to be bought someday or, or be valued someday based on some multiple of revenue, but, but really are building much more strategic value than that. So that uh, whoever were, were to ultimately acquire them, if that's the path they go down, has to have them, can't imagine their competitors having them, and, and probably can't do what they do if they didn't acquire it. Uh, we've invested in a wide range of companies. If you look at our portfolio, it's, it's, it's kind of all over the place. Uh, but the common theme is, you know, these, these are businesses that are, are capital efficient, highly scalable with uh, founders we want to spend a decade working with. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a two-way street. They have to really like the relationship with us and uh, feel like they're getting a lot of value from us the whole, the whole decade. So there's, in VC, everyone knows there's a handful of different things people invest in, right? Some people invest in teams, markets, products, barriers. That list sounds like you want it all. <laughs> what would you say is, is the not necessarily is that the answer? What what's the when you look I mean, at a, a company, will you yeah. if the if the founder's incredible but it's on the come, is that a deal for you? Or if yeah. you if you if if you kind of have gun to your head and have to make some tough choices, what's the most important? So you never get it you never get it all. Or it may be phrased differently, you don't have a crystal ball. So you don't know if you can get it all or not, you see some of it. You see signal for some of it that it can develop, or that uh, you know future innovation will likely happen. So whatever the core product is today will expand into a bigger core product or or additional products. <clears throat> and um, uh, yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the the founding team is the is the most important. I think some of our biggest mistakes in the past were where we knew the founders were winners. But couldn't convince ourselves on the business because it didn't. Not it. Not that it didn't check one of the boxes. It it actively was against one of our core philosophies. <laughs> but okay. we still should have done it because because the founder was so damn good and and would grow and 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 learn and adapt and uh, you know build something amazing through the years. And so founders definitely come first. Um, you know, there's tenants we don't like to violate, and so um, we're probably more right than wrong when we when we walk away from something because it, it it broke a key rule of ours and i think you know the best example of that is intellectual honesty right if we are talking with somebody over a period of a couple of weeks as we're getting to know them in the business and um it whatever they're saying is coming across as not valid or they're kind of making it up as they go and and they're not saying when they don't know something they're just trying to fake it that'll come across and that's a real turnoff for us so i think that that's served us well um but uh, you know, again, there's there's no crystal ball. We 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 tend to go very much with our hearts at the end of the day on if we want to spend the next decade building this business, and and at least one of us has to be banging their fist on the table. There has to be kind of an emotional component to this, where they they really have to do this deal, and um, we tend to do those deals, and we tend to walk away from the deals where one of us is banging their fist on the table, saying we are not back in that that founder for whatever reason. Um, those have been what are the best the ones for us. What are some of the other tenants you referenced? Do you, I mean, do you have a list of like a Ten Commandments yeah. that you guys follow? Uh, we don't. Um, we have a whole list of of criteria like that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't label it the the Ten Commandments, but the um, you know, just the the again, it's kind of the early signal we're able to detect. So their their ability to get people to join them early is a big one, right? Mm. Will people bet their careers on this idea and this founding team? Before there's cash in the bank, before you have your first customers, before anything, you know, have you have you convinced others 
they want to go on this journey, that they should go on this journey with you, right? That's a big one. Um, there's easy things to check off, right? If the market size is not in the billions, it's not something we're going to do, right? If, if scalability isn't really possible here, it's, it, there's just too many moving parts and there's going to be too much friction, we'll walk away. <coughs> um, we love to invest in things where it's possible to win the war before you fight the battles. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, I think you mentioned uh, Masterclass before. Yeah. That's, that's a great example of that. Um, Why does that match that criteria? What's, most people don't know the history and the strategy there. Yeah. How did they win before they started? So the bet at the time was, you know, we, we invested before they had actually released their first class, but we saw, the, fil- we saw the, the end production of the first class before they launched it. And it was, it was beautiful, right? Hollywood level production. It was actually the James Patterson class that we saw. And um, the bet was that if they could get enough of these masters, usually celebrities, early to film these classes and release them, as the library would start to grow, it would become a thing that the rest of the A-plus celebrities and masters out there would want to be a part of for legacy, for brand. They want to be known as the best of the best. And if you can get that flywheel going, it's going to be incredibly hard to compete with. And so really the trick was just getting the flywheel going. Can you get those early celebrities to do it and make the production value so high that the rest of them want to do it? Mm. Uh, if you can do that, it's going to be, uh, you know, your mode is going to be giant. And uh, you know, we, all the other criteria was, was hit here. We love the founder, such a good human, so fun to brainstorm with, um, so willing to both take and, and give feedback and, uh, uh, and, and kind of endearing i guess is, is a good word as, as an entrepreneur I mean, he was able early on to convince the initial celebrities to film classes which was amazing to us because it hadn't even launched yet so that was your your signal is that the celebrities were saying yes that was, well, that was one of the key signals good. we we love the model the quality was great um we we thought there would be one winner here we thought mm-hmm. that if you can become the place where you can learn from the best of the best being a second place, you know, copy of this was going to be almost impossible, and uh, uh, you know that was the bet. It sounds like you were pretty right on that one. Hey, why pick your firm? You talk about building a company with the entrepreneur, and I like that language because it's very true to you, having known you for so long. It sounds a lot like you're picking co-founders. Now you happen to be a capital partner at this stage in your career, but you as a serial entrepreneur, it yeah. sounds like you're just kind of serially going through launching companies again. So you're certainly, you're certainly choosing, go ahead. Yeah. Why pick your firm? Why are they, why do they choose Javelin over everybody else? So you're, you're certainly choosing partners. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them co-founders because the the companies are theirs, right? It's, it's Mm -hmm. very important to us that it is, it is your company. We're going to give you lots of advice and brainstorm with you, but these are your calls. It's your company you're building, Um, but we're going to be your partner. And we want you to have the same good relationship with us a decade from now as you did when, the, when we first invested. Uh, I think you choose us because uh, we, we have a lot of empathy for what you're going through, the ups and downs and just the pure difficulty of building a highly scalable startup. It is very, very hard. And there are constant challenges that you need to, to work through and talk through, constant need to recruit great people, raise more money do complicated biz dev deals, et cetera. And um, I think you choose us because we've been there. Uh, You can call any of our founders, uh, whether the company has worked out really well or not, and they should say the same thing about us. 
which we've been a great partner from start to finish. Um, and, um, you know, I think the culture of, uh, of Javelin is just really just how can we help you thrive here? Uh, we, I'll end this, this segment with, uh, we really try to avoid drama and distraction. And, we, and that includes guiding you on other investors that are going to come in after us. So who's ever going to lead the series B, C, D, whatever. And so, um, you know, we, we will give you a lot of, you know, now 12 years of wisdom on, on who might be a great other partner to bring in down the road, who's going to be super helpful, um, give you advice based on context, and uh, um, also be super friendly and, and fun to work with. You know, that's a big deal because I know you, you guys take board seats, right? Almost always. Almost always. And it's very hard, I find, for some VCs to really maintain strong and healthy relationships with founders when they're on the board in particular, because it creates tensions, challenges, complications. What, what has helped you guys, and maybe some advice for other VCs and entrepreneurs listening, to kind of keep the peace and stay human and keep those healthy relationships while you're in the pressure cooker of a boardroom? You know, I think there's an attitude that we're in this together, that the challenges that come up are just problems that need to be solved. It's, you know, shouldn't be anything personal. We should be able to give each other feedback along the way and then go out and get a beer afterwards. Um, and if, if any friction comes up, we'd like to deal with it immediately in a way that just keeps everything super friendly. Uh, it, it's crucial. I think there's a lot of investors out there that um, they kind of have the attitude that the entrepreneur works for them. And they can boss them around a lot. And um, when we see that, it's it's such a turnoff to us as a as a potential co investor. I can only imagine what the entrepreneur is going through. And so we we try to be kind of the opposite of that. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. you know, there are times when entrepreneurs do something that is frustrating to us. Uh, it, you know, of course, it happens all the time. We're we're all human, and we'll just talk it out and try to give advice and try to make sure you know there's lessons learned for the future. But we will never do it in a way that that is us coming down hard on them. Um, you know, we really try to avoid any situation like that. So your firm's a little unique, and I, I know some stuff that um, I think will be interesting for other VCs to learn about. Uh, a lot of firms, the natural cadence of development is maybe their first fund. Sometimes there's a lot of small checks from friends. Sometimes it's a rich uncle, that type of scenario. The second fund, they go out and they get a diversified LP base. And that's usually a pretty gauntlet cycle because you got to convince 50 or 100 people to trust you with their money, which is hard, which is really hard. And then there's this growth in institutions that kind of continuously back you. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Javelin started out for a first number cycle of funds, a number of them, with a single LP. And those were large funds. How yeah, did that a small, it was a small uh, uh, kind of extended family office. Um, Right. How did that yep. change the dynamic for the firm and building? What did you learn from that? Or would you recommend that to other folks? What do you think? Well, yes. I mean, I think it, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do, but it allowed us to focus almost 100% of our time on finding and backing companies and helping them succeed. And uh, you know, fundraising can be all-encompassing. It can take so many hours. And so um, you know, that was a huge advantage for us over the years. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it was a big advantage to the LPs as well, uh, because the, the, you know, the, the firm they backed were able to spend all their time doing their job. Right. And, uh, um, 
you know, obviously there's risk that's associated with that because you're, if your LP base is less diversified, um, you know, you better make sure you're keeping them happy along the way. <laughs> right. So, uh, but, you know, I, but honestly, it's the same risk as having a group of LPs, right? Because they're all going to look at it the same way. Are the returns there? Are they happy with the companies you're backing and with the, the you know, the way um, Javelin is growing as a firm? And, uh, you know, the, luckily it's worked out well for us. So you guys have been running at this for 12 years uh, and I'd say you've had a hell of a lot of success. What were the biggest challenges you faced for other venture, you know, would-be venture capitalists listening? Maybe something you learned about building the VC business. People always talk about entrepreneurs and yeah. VCs, but most yeah. VCs kind of are entrepreneurs. They're building a firm. It's a company. You know, every year I say, well, you don't get good at this job until, you know, you've been doing it five years or 10 years or now 12 years. <laughs> it's like every year you learn to pattern match a little better than the year before. Right. And, um, and you learn, you know, your network expands, you learn, uh, you know, who are good debt partners, who are good series B and C and D partners, who to avoid, who, um, uh, you know, what, uh, what recruiting infrastructure should you help set up and who's a great type of VP of engineering and who isn't, you learn all these things after doing it for so long that you didn't know in the beginning. And so in the beginning, you're really hoping to just invest in in great companies and help any way you can but you know the the amount you're able to help will only increase over time um the biggest advice though i would give to younger vcs or at least uh earlier funds would be patience would be um you know every everyone that comes in and, and pitches any deal they sound so good they've worked on their pitch it sounds exciting they've you know they're pitching it well Sounds awesome. Let's do it. And you got to get really good at at turning down good deals and and being patient and waiting for the great ones. Uh, and um, it's hard to do at first because until you've seen kind of thousands of deals come through, uh, you don't really know early on the difference between good and, and great. It takes time. And so, to the extent that you um, have a lot of patience early on save your capital and have it ready for when that deal comes through that just blows your mind. That's the best thing you can possibly do early on. That's great advice. Let's flip over to your entrepreneurial journey. Could you give a very quick high level recap of your story? I know you, you started your first comp, uh, entrepreneurial journey at a, at business school, right? Yeah, I was really fortunate to go to uh, Berkeley for business school at a time when the web was really just beginning. So this was um, 94 when I entered. And uh, I, you know, I literally got my first email account <laughs> when I started business school. <laughs> and uh, two months later, started RentNet. And, um, you know, I was I just learned about the internet. I had just learned what the hell HTML was and started learning how to code in HTML 1.0. And, uh, um, uh, my, my partner and I started RentNet because we thought that this was a great use of the internet, right? You're always looking for a place to live, uh, sometimes from a different city or state, and it's just really hard to do long distance. So what if you could look at photos and floor plans and ultimately virtual walkthroughs and search on, you know, narrow it down to a good apartment for you. <clears throat> and so we built it and um, it became clear in, in under a year that there was something here, you know, this was going to catch fire. And so we started hiring people and hiring reps around the country to visit all the large apartment buildings and inside reps. But the biggest thing we did, or, or I did at the time, was um, was benefit from uh, 
using RentNet as the focus of all my projects in business school. So I had teams of consultants, <laughs> basically <laughs> free consultants, helping me uh, work through some of the stuff as we, as we tried to build this. Um, almost dropped out of school, uh, but um, the dean convinced me to stay in, actually, and uh, was able to get it done. Um, RentNet ultimately evolved into Move.com, where uh, Move.com added homes and relocation services and mortgages and, and all that and became one of the two big real estate sites at the time, the other one being Realtor.com. And um, uh, again, we, we built that, um, honestly, it, it, a little too fast and added, a, uh, added people. You know, we were about 160 people when we turned it into Move.com and it, it grew to 350 in under a year. And that's, wow. just, that's just way too fast. And so there were cultural effects, but uh, we were also trying to take the company public at the same time. And, you know, it was, my head was on, was just spinning, trying to get everything done. Uh, and then 2000, um, or uh, what was this? was uh, two, March of 2000 when the market fell apart and we were literally on our roadshow. And so we just kept building the business, um, which ended up being a really good thing for us because it was uh, 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 just the business worked well. Uh, right, and, you and had, a, we you had real up, fundamentals, which was not common at the time for everyone right. going public. And so we were able to do a, a pretty big merger with Realtor.com in uh, February of '01, about a year after a, the crash. That was about a billion dollar transaction, right? Right. That's right. Great. So, what did you? What are some things you learned? And you know, because you you kind of are old school at this point, entrepreneur. Got some OG entrepreneurship going on here. You know, there's probably I don't some know if lessons. I, like that phrase. <laughs> I don't know you're like it either, but it's true. Um, there's probably some lessons you learned that were a different way of doing business back at the time that maybe apply today but aren't used as commonly. Customer acquisition, anything jump to mind that you think was like a particularly uh, honestly, the tactics are different, folks? but the but the um, you know the fundamentals will, will always be the same. I think the uh, you know as an example. We were so aggressive about about sales and building our brand and being um, being in front of the potential customer so often that when the salesperson came by to do the sale, they had they already heard about us, knew about us, knew their competitors were using us, and honestly, it was like a hundred, almost a hundred percent hit rate for our salespeople. And how so did we, you create that awareness? What was the? How did you suffocate people with information? Uh, at the at the time, it was a lot of. Um, Believe it or not, mailings, <laughs> mm. and uh, uh, but really high higher end ones, and it was it was um, you know a lot of sales visits and, and phone calls. It was ads and all the trades. It was um, building. It was a lot of PR, right? Just to get the industry talking about us. And really, there was a bottoms up approach too. So we would get the leasing agents to be aware and uh, and and kind of move it up the chain. Uh, so that the management companies that owned, uh, you know, or managed uh, two or three hundred or four hundred buildings would hear about it from so many of their leasing agents that by the time we pitched them at the top level, they were already convinced. Right. Had any any thoughts on the direct mailing? I feel like that's fallen out of most people's toolkit. Yeah. Every, I, I heard a stat. I don't know if it's true. Sixty percent of dollar venture capital dollars raised are dumped into social media ads at this point. I'm sure that's wrong, but I know it's a lot. Well, look. If you're going straight to consumer, is direct mailing no longer relevant? Is there an angle there? Is it underutilized and maybe higher ROI? Amazingly, it's still a huge industry. But but look, if if you're going to the consumer direct, then you're going to find a much better ROI online, without a doubt. And there's lots of ways to do it. In fact, one of the best ways right now is actually OTT. That's where we're getting great uh, returns for a number of our companies. Describe um, that. That's just uh, it's more trackable, kind of. Video ads on on video content that you're streaming, 
as mm-hmm. opposed to just uh, you know. Is there a network or place you like to buy those? Uh, where, are you, where are you guys shopping? That's so that that's more of a question for our portfolio companies on who they're specifically mm-hmm. using to buy those. Um, uh, so I can't really advise you there. Um, okay. But if you're going after businesses, and especially uh, you know if you know who the decision maker is, and especially if it's SMBs. Um, sometimes it's it's actually harder to get them through through whatever online thing they're doing because they're they're um, it just gets noisy, right? They get so many emails and so many so many ads in front of them every day mm-hmm. that if you can do something different, that's more of a a thing that pops out at them for some reason. You know, again, it's, it's also a longer term branding exercise. So if you can do this uh, uh, several times, so by the time someone's trying to make the sale, it's it's in their mind. It might be a combination of offline and online. Um, but I wouldn't do I wouldn't do offline things that are just kind of cheap and flimsy and something they're just going to throw away immediately. If it doesn't pop out, it's not going to be worth any money at all. So you're you were COO of that company, and I've always known you to be very operational in the way you think and op- and function. Are, is there a particular advice you would give to the entrepreneurs listening who are in the COO seat? Everyone's talking to the CEOs. What does a COO yep. need to hear? To kick butt, you know the the COO for the most part is running the company. The CEO has so many other responsibilities, you know, in terms of the the top recruiting and fundraising and 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 PR and um, you know the strategic initiatives. The COO is doing kind of the day to day tactical, making it happen, and um, they're going to need great lieutenants. They're going to need a lot of support. They're going to need great resources. They should have um, mentors of other of other COOs that they get together with and, and kind of compare notes. Uh, they need to be uh, very detail oriented and tireless, and they have to build fantastic tools to track everything that's going on in their business, so that software helps them be a lot more efficient. And um, I think uh, you mentioned Thumbtack earlier. I mean, Thumbtack in in particular is so good at, at at building tools that show them how every aspect of their business is working and what needs attention right now. And uh, you know, if you think about Thumbtack, it's actually not one big marketplace. It's a million little marketplaces. So each category and each geography is its own marketplace. Hmm. And, and um, uh, to be able to um, study what's happening in a million little marketplaces and you know, make adjustments on the demand or supply side uh, in in real time, and then build the future product the right way to um, you know improve everything. Um, it, it's a it's an Im- immense undertaking, and um, so the the COO there uh, is a guy named Jeff Grant who's amazing, uh, and uh, we spend a lot of time together just 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 brainstorming on on uh, on things like that. Um, you, every company, especially as it gets to scale. Needs a fantastic, fantastic uh, person that's that's watching all of that in real time and uh, and just uh, you know operationally excellent. Whatever the title is, whether they're COO or something else. Go ahead. There's an interesting derivative point in that, right? Uh, Everyone, a lot of early entrepreneurs think a lot about building a product, but they don't realize that every product is two products. You've got the customer facing product, and then you've got the internal product which is your admin dashboards, the functions yep. so you can adjust things in customer service. Anything you've seen, is it any wisdom on the internal product? Is it 
build more analytics early? Is that what something you took from Thumbtack? What's well, the? Yeah, I mean, they so they are extremely data centric. So they build a, a lot of tools and they track everything. I think, um, you know, a lot of our companies have gotten really, really good at that. And I guess the advice is, you want to study as much as possible, but you want to make sure the stuff you're studying is the most relevant stuff. And, uh, and that the things that are alerting you and the things you're focusing your time on and prioritizing are the right things. Because you can, you can go crazy on this and you can study every last little thing forever and all you're doing is analyzing all the time. So you have to, you have to build tools in a way that, um, that really bring the high priority things up to the top and paint a clear picture, not just to the executive team, but really to the whole company on what's really happening with the business so that everyone understands why you're prioritizing certain things certain ways. So you've taken a company public. I'm gonna. You mentioned earlier your roadshow from. Well, we were about to take it public when you're in your process. Yep. And so you you had experience kind of going through that dynamic, and yep. not a lot of entrepreneurs do. Not a lot of folks get to that point where they see that on the inside. Also, the the game's changed a lot. I mean, that was better part of twenty years ago. Have you seen what's changed on yep. the IPO process for yep. companies? How do you think about that? So. Um, we have a, a slew of companies that are, are gearing up for this over the next um, you know, six to 24 months. And, um, uh, you know, it's, look, it's, it's intense. I mean, you got to be really organized. You, your, your, your board has to be the right board for this. Um, and a diverse board is super important. The, um, uh, it has to be, the business has to be at a very predictable place so that there there are no big surprises and that people know how to analyze it you tell a clean story of what you know how to think about the business how to look at the right metrics and you you hit what you say you're going to hit the biggest difference though is um you know the access to to capital as a private company is so immense and especially such large amounts of money that companies are waiting much much longer before they go public you know it used to be if you had 50 million in revenue, you could go public. And now like companies don't even think about it until they're doing over 200 million. And a lot of companies are going when they're at like a billion. And um, it's, just a different, it's just a different animal. <clears throat> um, at that point, you also have to be able to attract uh, you know, much bigger, longer-term investors. And, and uh, obviously, tell a much bigger story of what this business is going to become you know, in the next five or 10 years. And why the market opportunity is still so much bigger than what you've created at this point. Um, but the biggest difference is the private capital. It's, 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 it's pretty amazing, actually. I wonder what the chicken and egg there on the private capital side is. Uh, Barry Silbert, who runs Digital Currency Group, used to run a company called Second Market. I think it was bought by the, uh, NYSE. Um, it's certainly used by them. Uh, and I remember he gave a talk once. And he said that the average time to go pu- to hit an IPO around the boom was four years. And I actually think that's where the four-year vesting cycle comes for employees. But it's shifted to nine years now. Yep. My understanding at the time was what delayed it was the legislation, the regulations the government put in after the crash in 2001, 2000, 2001. Uh, and I wonder if the, pri- do you, yep. do the private capital, private capital came in after companies couldn't go public, right? Wasn't there like this, there's very tenuous valley where companies would be, you know, IPO scale of old, but not be able to go public because the cost and the process was too big. And so they were looking for capital and raising rounds that were subscale for where they were. 
Yeah. And then we see things like um, Tiger and SoftBank yeah. stepping in with bigger books. I think that's how it started, right? That's certainly, it was really hard to go public, right? So that, that's how the, the demand side of it certainly started, right? The companies needed to find cash and be able to get their ducks much more aligned before they were ready to go public. With that said, the investors discovered it's, you know, when you're buying companies at the IPO, uh, it's it, it's limited. You're getting an inflated, uh, uh, or at least a higher price than you wanted to pay for it, perhaps. And uh, you know, if you could get in earlier at a, at a discount to that, but you still knew you wanted to be a you know hold the, the the shares after they were public, why not aggressively find out a way to do that and figure out if you could push your way into these companies a year before or six months before they go public? Mm-hmm. If you're going to buy their stock anyways, it's almost free money for you. So, um, you know, they all kind of recognized this and started approaching the companies and the companies reacted rationally and said, hey, yes, uh, you know, higher valuation. I can, I can build more. I can uh, be better prepared to be a public company and uh, be a stronger company with a stronger balance sheet. And I don't have to rush it so much. Um, it'll be less about my need for capital when I do it and more about... Um, uh, liquidity, being able to make acquisitions, having a currency, etc., and kind of a, a longer-term investor base made sense for both parties. I get it. It's just hard for uh, you know earlier-stage investors like us, um, or I shouldn't say it's hard. I say we're, we're just in it longer, right? So, when, like you said, we used to be in a company for you know five to seven years, and now it's seven to ten years. But right. the outcomes are going to be bigger, so it's it, it ends up making a lot of sense in the long run for for everybody. And LPs have adapted to that. So it feels like the whole market's recalibrated. For the new I think model. some LPs have adapted to that. I think mm. um, the LPs love distributions, right? They love sure. to know that, uh, that your early investments worked, they got bought, they went public, there's a big check coming their way, they can reallocate to other things, you know, et cetera. Um, and if things are going to take three or four years longer, but be a much bigger check when it does come... That's great when it does come, but in the three or four years they're waiting for it, you know, they can grow impatient. Mm-hmm. So that's going to happen. You're going to see a lot of that. Uh, and then I think over time, um, the ROI is going to, uh, you know, be clearer for everybody and they're going to be, they're going to be happy um, with the outcome. Let's switch gears for a second because you, you have another interesting dimension as I've watched your career over the years. Uh, I know you've been involved with political campaigns in the past. If I'm not mistaken, you played a small, you know, role, but we're involved in the Obama campaign a while ago. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the, you know, this kind of ties into the current political dynamic. Uh, what do you make of the role of social media in society? And I ask you, I think <laughs> in particular, because yeah. you sit at the nexus of venture capital. So you're kind of on the business side of tech. You're looking at the political side, you're investing in it. You're affected by it. Yeah. We've all watched this social dilemma recently. What's your what's your read on what's happening? Yeah, it's it's hard to answer that question with just one hat on, right? So let me just put the take the VC hat off for a second and just put my Jed Cats hat on. It's scary what's happening out there. It's scary how fast misinformation can travel and how many more times it gets shared than facts, and how how quickly people believe misinformation, and how dangerous it is. And uh, um, you know, it keeps it literally keeps me up at night when you think about some of the um, 
some of the things you know people that you would otherwise think are extremely smart people are are believing that are so clearly proven wrong. <clears throat> and I think the um, the social media companies, the big ones, have have not done um, nearly enough. If anything, it's the opposite. They are aggressively pushing uh, clear misinformation uh, because it just gets more clicks and more more minutes, and and they make more money. And um, you know they're causing these things to to uh, become worse than they need to be. And so, um, you know, like putting my my VC hat back on, I would love to to find startups that can can really innovate a a clear solution to these things um, without you know causing some big problem with free speech, but with uh, with just figuring out a way to win, figuring out a way to to make sure facts are honored and shared more than misinformation is, and uh, um, and in a way that um, you know the business models still work, so there's there's no incentive to to uh, to shut that down. It's really tricky and hard. And uh, what would you do if you were either running one of the big social media companies or regulating this? Yeah. What would be a potential solution here? You know, it's a tough one because um, they're so driven by what what makes the most money, which makes it really hard in the short term. I remember, uh, you know, when they first started solving the reputational things on, on search engines, you know, where somebody would put something bad up about about someone and, you know, it would just be there and they couldn't do anything about it. And then they realized if they put up a ton of good stuff about them, the bad stuff goes way to the bottom eventually. And, and you know, maybe that works at least at least for some amount of time. Companies like, um, I don't know, I don't remember, was it reputation.com or one of them, you know, kind There's of started of off. out there. Right. Yeah, and uh, you know that that was at least a tactic that uh, you know that worked, um, and uh, so I don't I don't know I don't know if it's just figuring out a way to get the um, facts to jump to the top more, uh, but it's the same thing with with a lot of j- journalists too that will use headlines that um, you know result in more clicks and it helps their journalists you know promote themselves and the article get read more, but. The headline is just completely false, or paints a, a, a picture that is um, very misleading. You know that happens all the time. So I think, I think social media companies and journalists together have to kind of <laughs> bring a lo- little more honor to what they do, and it's going to cost them a little bit of money. And so maybe there's there's great entrepreneurs out there that can help make sure it either costs them less money or actually makes them money. Uh, but ultimately, there's going to have to be a recognition that there's um, that making money is not the only thing that's important because of the damage some of the other stuff is doing to to our society here. You know, I feel like this has been. You know, I'm a little bit of a history nerd, but misinformation has been around for centuries. It's as old yeah, as it gets. The difference now, though, how fast it can travel. But the difference is right now it's it's a tidal wave yep. when you say the wrong thing. Um, it's interesting yep. to see if the government figures out how to legislate this. Because usually when there's bad behavior in companies in our type of society, we're dependent on the government to actually put bumper rails up. And they haven't done it yet, but I know they're trying. They're at least talking about stuff. And I'm, I'm anxious because I don't know that a lot of our legislators understand the underlying issues. They you don't. watch some of these hearings, it's terrifying. They don't <coughs> use the yeah. tools they're trying to regulate. There's, I don't know um, if the federal government can do this. I don't know if this is a okay. problem they can solve. I think... Um, who else is going to solve it? These are multinationals. Uh, well, I'm, look, right. I'm hoping entrepreneurs solve it. 
right? I think um, everyone knows it's a big problem. And when there are big problems, founders come out and create solutions that you and I couldn't have dreamed of, but like can catch fire. And I'm, I'm hoping that happens. And I'm hoping that it happens in a way where the big you know, social media players and even journalists notice and it changes their behavior. And uh, um, you know, we, we, we've looked at things along the way that were really clever, but are, we're going to have a really hard time scaling. And mm-hmm. so what, I, what I'd really like to discover is, is um, a, a company that can help solve these problems and do it in a scalable way. So the, the government is right now talking about putting legislation in place to try to tackle some antitrust level for big tech. They're trying to limit yeah. conflicts of interest. You know, promoting their own products, making sure the companies are a little bit more interoperable. But they're also trying to put a bit of friction in around uh, acquisitions, uh, which is an interesting yeah. byproduct. I guess they're trying to reduce yeah. consolidation. What do it you comes make down of- to monopoly power, right? And, and, and what happens when you have monopoly power or something close to monopoly power? And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I don't like them limiting smaller acquisitions. Uh, because it, it creates too much friction. You can kill businesses along the way if you do that. I think that's bad. We actually, when we were doing the move.com um, merger with uh, realtor.com, uh, we had to go through, um, you know, HSR approval. And it, what should have been a, you know, 30 day exercise turned into an eight month exercise because they thought wow. we were going to be a monopoly in real estate, which is insane. Eight months. And so I can only imagine what some of the bigger companies are going through. Uh, even with some smaller acquisitions. And so I think um, that can get out of hand uh, quickly. But, what, but the theme is the right theme, which is if, mon- if monopolies or, or, or companies that are close to being monopolies um, start abusing their power in a way that um, is really hurting uh, you know, free market, um, then at some point they're, 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 they're too big and there needs to be some controls. And you do see that with some of the big companies that... Um, you know, put their own services ahead of uh, people that uh, other businesses that aren't owned by them in a way that, uh, you know, gives them way too much advantage. Um, you also see it in, um, you know, we'll take Google as an example, you know, amazing company does a lot of amazing things. Uh, but if they change their search algorithm in a way that um, for whatever reason, wasn't fair, it, it, it didn't analyze a certain thing correctly or the people that made that decision, and they change their algorithm to kind of ding somebody, that's, that company loses all their SEO power. And they don't even know who to call. They don't know how to you know, reach out and appeal and, and provide facts and try to you know, get, a, get, get somebody to, to talk to to kind of overturn that algorithm change. And it takes forever to figure it out. And I, I think that's, that's pretty terrible because that can, that can kill businesses overnight. And sometimes, um, you know, we've discovered over the last uh, decade, uh, th- those decisions can be made um, uh, you know, kind, of, kind of quickly um, and kind of on, on wrong information and uh, um, cause a lot of damage. And eventually, when you do get to the right person, it, c- it can be overturned and fixed. But there's a lot of uh, money lost in the meantime. And uh, um, you know, it's just a scary position to be in that you can um, kind of flip a switch and really hurt a business without having a, a you know, a real um, you know, place for that company to be heard and talk it out first. If we go back into history, when we had the, 
the trusts, the lar- super large companies, the monopolies develop, oligopolies develop. One of the major tools wasn't just regulation. They broke them up. They sliced divisions into separate businesses. Do you think there's a play here for that, that taking the big five companies and breaking them into big hundred you know, or medium hundred would be an appropriate move? Or do you think that's more damage than benefit? I'd like to see that not be necessary. So I'd like to see the companies um, behave in a way where no one's calling for that. That's better. Um, are they going to get to a size where some version of that, where some division is necessary because it's just too much power? They probably will get there. Uh, I don't know if that's um, you know in the next couple years or or you know a couple decades, but um, it would be nice if that wasn't necessary. Jed, this has been great. Let me ask you one kind of final question here as we get into this. You've had a long run. You've done the entrepreneur thing. You've done the venture thing. And you are unfortunately an OG at this point. <laughs> What's the next 10 years gotten hold for you? I don't know. I you, still feel you? young. We, we have such a uh, great team of, of different aged people here. And it's, it keeps me young. Uh, startups keep me young. Working with founders keep you young. Um, whenever I feel like um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm too up there for, to properly analyze something, I call my niece, who's uh, <laughs> 16. <laughs> And she she helps make us helps make us make the right decisions here. Yeah. Uh, 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 this job is so fun. I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll be doing this a, a, a while longer because, man, there's never a boring day in this job, is there? Do you ever get bored? I can't no. remember ever being bored. I love it. Jed, thank you for everything. Thanks for being on the show today. This is great. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, next time we'll have to get into how we. Uh, how we originally met because it's it's still one of my favorite stories, but <laughs> we'll talk about that I, next time. I, I carefully carved that out of the conversation today, <laughs> if you didn't notice. But anyway, thanks for being here. All right. Thanks, Mark. Bye. All right. That was awesome. Huge thanks to Jed for joining me on the pod today. I love catching up with him as always, and I really appreciate hearing his take on what's happening in the world today. If you like what you heard, please stick us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD and to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.